0: This is Dr. Deanna Wyndham, and I'm going to be speaking to you today about lupus and an alternative treatment approach that I hope will help you, whether you're a patient or a physician. The first thing I want to talk about is from the patient perspective. So if you're a patient that's been diagnosed with lupus then what happens often is that it's a very long and lonely journey. People don't understand what you're going through. There's a chronic progression of symptoms. Often there are multiple doctors, dozens of doctor visits before a person is diagnosed. Physicians also get frustrated because whether we're talking about lupus or other autoimmune diseases, these are often patients that are very sick multiple symptoms in multiple different systems of the body and traditional treatments often don't work the way that they should or only work for a short period of time and i want you to know that i've been there too on both sides of it i have been the person that went decades without a correct diagnosis. I started having autoimmune problems when I was only nine months old, but those continued into until adulthood when I was in my 30s and told I probably wouldn't live to be 40. After that, I was a physician trying to treat people who, like me, were difficult to diagnose, had multiple things going on, didn't respond to treatments, and It became my mission to find out what was happening and why and what we could do to help. So I looked and I learned from other people in the field. I've now had 20 years of extra training outside of medical school and experience with myself and patients. And that's what I'm bringing to you now. So if we look at the typical process that's called lupus, lupus. This is a complicated process of cellular interactions, but in short, we are always told that lupus happens in genetically susceptible people who are exposed to random and unknown environmental factors that create the conditions of lupus or other autoimmune diseases, although this slide is more specific to lupus. If we take this, And break it down a little bit, we can see that there are four mechanisms of action in regards to lupus and the cellular abnormalities. So, in this red circle, you see abnormality of B and T cell lymphocytes as well as dendritic cells that create a negative feedback loop. We see that it's in the orange circle, we see that it's an inflammatory disease with overproduction of cytokines. In the yellow circle, we see that it's a clearance disease where cells die off early and the macrophages and dendritic cells don't pick them up and get rid of them. And then in the pink circle, a type 3 hypersensitivity reaction so all of these are in effect those four mechanisms of action are in effect but then there's also mitochondrial dysfunction oxidative damage stem cell abnormalities and a th1 th2 imbalance so all of this is going on in lupus and this is why we get caught in not in trying to shut down the process but not understanding how to treat it because it is so complicated what we do is if we step back a little bit, we begin to see that the research is pointing us in a little bit of a different direction. So it's not just genetics that's the problem, but epigenetics, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. And your your epigenetics is how your body, how your genetics change over your lifetime, your epigenetic factors are acted upon by triggers, which are known and treatable. So if we know that it's epigenetics and triggers, both of which are treatable, this becomes a more treatable disease. There is an entire study of epigenetics that could take us days to unravel. Suffice it to say, that as i said your epigenetics is above genetics it's how your genetics are changed or how your genetic expression changes throughout your lifetime most people think that how we're born is how we're how we die in relation to our dna and our genetic expression but this is not actually the case all autoimmune diseases are epigenetic diseases with triggers which can be treated. It shows us that in lupus, there is this heritable aspect, which is epigenetic changes. And we know a lot of them. We know that these, we even know how these epigenetic changes happen at a cellular level. So if you're a physician, you know that non-coding RNA, DNA methylation, and histone modification is what causes these epigenetic changes. But what causes the DNA methylation, for instance? So we know this too. We know that oxidative damage and the triggers uh, that we're about to discuss are the things that lead to the epigenetic changes of lupus. This is very good news for us, because if we can elucidate the triggers that lead to the epigenetic changes and reverse those triggers, then we can potentially reverse the epigenetic changes leading to lupus and reverse the disease itself which is what I did for myself, triggers for epigenetic change. There are 12 triggers, which I have separated into four categories, as you see here. We do not have time to go over every single one of these triggers. But if you look at chapter two in the LDN book, I wrote that chapter and we go over the triggers in more detail. And if you listen to the other lectures that I have at this conference, I've tried to address more of these triggers and expand on the other triggers in the other two lectures. So um, let's talk about some of these triggers. So first thing we want to look at is your genes. How do triggers cause genetic change? So if we review the research, we see that the microbiome in some research circles has been called the infectome because we know that changes to the microbiome create changes to our genetic code. We also know that it takes several genes being at what we might call activated to induce autoimmunity in a person. And then it likely takes several environmental triggers as well. So we take these triggers along, several triggers along with several genes, and we start to see that together this creates the autoimmune disease of lupus and others, talking about the microbiome, because this might be the biggest trigger inside the human body. The microbiome, in this case, we're referring to the bacteria in the gut. There are trillions of bacteria in the gut that have 350 times more genetic code than your human body does, and we know that there is a transmission of that genetic code from the microbiome to our human genetics and that changes in the microbiome create changes in our genetic code there's also a direct inverse association between bacterial diversity in the microbiome and lupus disease activity meaning that the less diverse the microbiome is the higher the risk of developing lupus and the worse the lupus is. And we know that all the other triggers for autoimmune disease impact the microbiome as well. We learn that uh, fecal transplantation from lupus like mice to healthy mice, creates a lupus like response in the healthy mice, and they develop the double stranded DNA, which is a mark of lupus. And there are several imbalances that we know in the microbiome that directly contribute to those epigenetic changes. And those things are listed here. Vitamin D is also. A very significant risk factor for lupus. Those patients that have the lowest vitamin D levels have the highest rates of lupus development and worse disease process. This is an easy and inexpensive thing to treat. And I typically like to get my patients not into the normal range, but into a great range with their levels above 50 on lab work. Because this It has several um, important factors. It stabilizes these epigenetic changes. It inhibits the proliferation of activated B cells, T cells, and cytokines, and it prevents the differentiation of dendritic cells into the uh, more pathological forms. Zinc, because zinc has uh, zinc deficiency, rather, has been shown to increase the risk of autoimmune diseases and um, because zinc regulates aspects of both the innate and adaptive immune responses. It's also been shown specifically to inhibit the Th17 lymphocytes, which increases the susceptibility to autoimmune disease. Um, as you can see here, it has several um, implications in the function of TMB cells, the Th1, Th2 pathways, the pro-inflammatory cells, and the natural killer cell functions. So you see there's a very good reason to be watching zinc levels and copper levels because you want a good balance between the two in your patients. This in sleep. Sleep is often a trigger for worsening symptoms. And the problem is this is a an, uh, chicken and the egg issue. Did sleep come first and lack of sleep contribute to the development of autoimmune disease? Or does having lupus and chronic pain and chronic fatigue and the imbalances associated with that create sleeping problems? Well, both are probably true. But the importance is that we need to treat sleep and sleep medications are not enough because sleep medicine or prescription medicines don't increase the deep sleep. Deep sleep is when your body repairs and regenerates. It's when it stabilizes your immune system. So you need deep restorative sleep, which is not replaced with prescription medications. Pathogens. So pathogens are bacteria, viruses, parasites, um, pleiotrophic organisms, um, chronic infections of all types. So pathogens actually activate a type 1 interferons which, um, change the immunoregulatory functions of the body and promote progression or worsening of autoimmune disease. Um, this happens with chronic infections of all type, like Epstein-Barr virus, recurrent MRSA infections, um, especially infections with uh, chronic Lyme or chronic mold and, um, the mechanisms through which these pathogens cause this is through cellular changes, cytokine productions, mimicry, and neutrophil, uh, neutrophilic extra, extracellular matrices. Um, there's also very significant, um, aspect of uh, environmental toxicity. Specific to lupus, the strongest research evidence is with silica, cigarette smoking, oral contraceptives, and synthetic hormone replacement therapy, not bioidentical, but synthetic. And there are likely associations with heavy metals, air pollution, um, pesticides, and solvents. But there are other things that patients notice in their everyday lives. I often say that people with autoimmune disease are poor detoxifiers. A poor detoxifier, in my, my terminology, um, is just what it sounds like. Poor detoxifiers do not eliminate environmental toxins as well as other people do. So these environmental toxins build up in the system. And as they build up, they lead to increasing um, epigenetic changes. And as more of those epigenetic changes um, build up in your body, it creates increasing risk for autoimmune disease. Problem with lupus treatment. So when we're talking about lupus and the traditional treatment, it just doesn't work. If you're a lupus patient, you know that you can get a response to a medication, but it often doesn't stick. So you may feel better for a day, a week, a month, or a year, but eventually because The process of autoimmune disease is so complicated and involves so many different cellular functions and dysfunctions because it involves genes and triggers and all the different cells. Treating with one medication to block one process just doesn't work. The immune system is a highly adaptive system. It is designed to find ways around Problems. So the immune system does. And what happens is we end up with patients that eventually don't respond to a treatment and we keep chasing this, but it never gets to the actual problem to address. We want to treat the whole person. We want to look at all of those 12 triggers. We want to look at the contributory systems and address the imbalances. We need to consider treatment. If you've already done all of that and you're still not feeling at your best, which Sometimes that happens. Many times that happens. Then we need to consider other core issues. Leaky gut syndrome, a leaky blood brain barrier, mitochondrial dysfunction, stem cells, other things that might be factors um, that we need to address. So very often in my autoimmune patients, we have to be thinking outside the box and determining what's going to be most helpful in each person. There is no standard of care when we're talking about lupus or autoimmune disease. There is only personalized care for each person, and that's what works. We learn that LDN helps with epigenetic changes. LDN actually has a positive impact, decreasing the risk of these epigenetic changes because it decreases the oxidative damage. It adjusts the inflammatory cascade and it's known to have a positive impact on gene regulation. Low-dose naltruxone also has a positive impact in the microbiome. So while there isn't a lot of research at this point telling us exactly how low-dose naltrexone impacts the microbiome. We do know that there are many studies that have shown positive benefits in people that have autoimmune diseases associated with the gut, such as Crohn's, um, ulcerative colitis, inflammatory bowel disease, inflam—sorry, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, and many others. And low dose naltrexone decreases the inflammatory cytokines produced in the gut, alters the pathological cellular balance of lupus um, in the to aid the microbiome, and has a positive impact on the opioid receptors in the gut. Lupus and the diet recommendations. So there are some things that I typically like to discuss with my lupus patients, um, and I like to talk about a. Microbiome diet, which you, there are many books written about this, but there is a a diet that improves the health of the microbiome. And then here are some specific recommendations for supplements that can be utilized to help the um, diet in patients with lupus and helped to, these are the ones that have the greatest research behind them showing the benefits specific to lupus. Lupus and sleep treatment specifically should always start with sleep hygiene, but many people have already done that. So you can look up sleep hygiene in a Google search, and that's just the basics of sleep. But while that can work for somebody that doesn't have autoimmune disease. Often it doesn't work for somebody who does. And low-dose naltrexone can often help in this because while difficulty sleeping is one of the major side effects, after low-dose naltrexone is tapered up, it often helps with sleep in the long term. Very sensitive patients need to be treated very slowly but um, to decrease the risk of increasing insomnia, but once you get them on low-dose naltrexone, it often helps. There are some other tricks that we can use, like blue-blocking glasses, wearing an eye mask at bedtime, um, a dawn and dusk alarm. Uh, there's an app called Brainwave, 35 binaural beats. There's also a Calm app. These things, uh, the Brainwaves, you can listen to with Calm, which is uh, like a... a something that uh, gives you a meditation to do at night falling asleep, and I like to use these two together. You can also listen to books while you're falling asleep. And there's something called a Fisher-Wallace device, which is alpha stimulation of the brain, which helps in insomnia more than 70% of the time. So these are some of the tricks that I use to help get somebody sleeping better. In regards to treatment and pathogens. Low-dose naltrexone is well known to decrease the frequency and severity of infections. It decreases the damaging inflammatory process that is associated with infections and improves the healthy inflammatory cells that help to fight off chronic or acute infection. And low-dose naltrexone actually improves the functionality of the immune system to fight infections and other forms of um, the disease process associated with it. And we're starting with a case study for one of my patients that started her journey with me when she was 36. So Prior to coming to see me, this was a patient that had hormonal issues and irregular periods, pain and moodiness since puberty. She was a marathon runner in high school, but would have sudden bounce of severe weakness, causing her legs to give out. She was diagnosed with chronic fatigue. She was exposed to hepatitis B in high school. She gave traumatic childbirth at age 20 and afterwards had six DNC procedures for worsening endometriosis. She had a stressful, abusive first marriage, which kept her in constant turmoil. She was diagnosed with Raynaud's disease in her early 20s. At age 28, she underwent a hysterectomy for severe endometriosis and fibroids. And by her early 30s, she had all over body pain recurrent and worsening focal neurologic deficits that was diagnosed as transient ischemic attacks, and she was started on morphine by her primary care doctor and sent to the Mayo Clinic. At the Mayo Clinic, she was diagnosed with um, combined multiple sclerosis and lupus, although the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis was questionable, that's in quotes, if you will, from the Mayo Clinic doctors. Um, because she didn't have a typical response to that. So they thought she was lupus, but couldn't explain these TIAs that she was having. So they said possibly multiple sclerosis. She was started on methotrexate, increased to the highest dosage. Her morphine was changed to a pump. She was added a fentanyl patch and naproxen. But she was debilitated. She was walking with crutches because her legs were too weak to hold her up. She could only walk short distances. She had severe brain fog and severe fatigue, and she was given one to three years to live. But she wanted to fight. So when she presented to my clinic at age 35, she had to be brought by her parents She was barely able to walk in. She was confused. She had memory problems, high dose medications. She was, she's five foot seven and weighed 69 pounds. She was dying and we had no time to waste. So we immediately started her on high dose IV nutrients, a specialized diet, which was prepared and delivered for her. She was started on acupuncture, frequency specific microcurrent therapy and neurofeedback. She began a very fast morphine and fentanyl taper, fentanyl taper. We did this with her, with a long discussion with her and her family, understanding that it would be difficult to do, but would help her meet her goals faster, which she agreed to. Slide 32, she calls this the best worst month of her life. She was tapered down to oral opioids within two weeks and off the fentanyl patch. At that point, we added low-dose naltrexone beginning at 0.5 milligrams and tapering up by 0.5 every three days. And she took this uh, with with two hours in between her opioids. Labs came in, and with that, we started her on vitamin D, bioidentical hormones, IV MSM for high amounts of inflammation. Her supplements were adjusted, but we kept her on powdered supplements. She was started on subcutaneous human growth hormone for a human growth hormone level that was equal to somebody in their 90s. In the very first week of treatment, She stated that her brain health was beginning to improve. She was feeling less depressed and anxious. She was sleeping better and she was eating more and having less GI problems. By the second week, she was beginning to gain weight. Her pain was decreasing steadily despite the fact that she was coming off of the opioids. She was walking easier, feeling stronger and less short of breath. This worst month of her life, When I say weeks one and two, those were weeks one and two after the first week morphine taper. So the after the first month, um, she still had a long battle for recovery. But within four weeks, she was completely off all opioids and she has remained off and remain off the opioids and on the LDN for all of this time. She's 50 this year. She has regular medication and supplement adjustment, starting at every six weeks to begin with and every three to six months in the years afterwards. She remains on bioidentical hormones, supplements, diet diet. Um, She has not needed the human growth hormone after three months of treatment. Um, She addressed psychological issues, relationship issues, and learned how to set boundaries in her life, manage stress and sleep better. And she still meditates and exercises regularly. She has had no recurrence of any MS symptoms or neurologic symptoms or TIAs. She's had no recurrence of lupus or chronic pain. We haven't done any repeat MRIs because they weren't indicated, but her ANA and double-stranded DNA have remained normal or negative for nearly eight years now. And there appears to be no organ damage that we can uh, test for on blood work or, um, or other tests. We have battled intermittent GI problems with her and a recurrent pancreatitis, but with management, she has um, managed to stay vibrant and strong throughout her life, and now is actually caring for her husband, who's a disabled vet. So I know this has been super fast. We haven't had a chance to go through the details, but we just don't have enough time. This should take up several hours to go through all of this. So what I want you to remember is, one, take a look at those triggers again, maybe even print out that slide, keep it with you. You should have ways of evaluating and treating each of those. So when you don't know where to start, start with the microbiome. Start with the gut, start with lifestyle factors, start a patient on LDN on their very first visit, unless they're on an opioid patch or they're on very high dose or long acting opioids, get them off of those first and then start them on LDN. I always ask myself, is there a reason not to start? And if there isn't a compelling reason, I get them started start with the gut-brain connection. I call this a top-down approach. Neurofeedback, um, alpha stimulation. I prefer the Fisher-Wallace for several reasons. There's um, low-dose naltrexone. Things that start with the brain can calm down the hyperreactivity that a lot of autoimmune patients have. Um, The gut-endocrine connection. You really are probably going to have to address hormones adrenals and get those stabilized and then the gut toxin link clean up what comes in start with greens which help the body to start to remove some of these things and develop a detox program so that's where you want to get started And remember to look at the whole picture. I'm again, I'm Dr. Windham. You can find me at my website or this email. You can read chapter two of the LDN book to get more information about this approach. And I have a book, Hacking Autoimmune Disease, which is going to be out very soon. And I hope that this can be of benefit to you. And I wish you all the best. Thank you.